0: Lactantius is a Christian philosopher, which means on the one hand that he is a Christian and his Christian faith is going to be drawn upon and incorporated into his philosophical activity, but that he is also recognizing that philosophy has contributions to make and that it's important that he engage with the, you know, array of philosophical positions and perspectives perspectives and thinkers that have preceded him for hundreds of years and in the very beginning of his treatise on the anger of God he is going to provide us with a kind of formulation of the project that he is engaged in which connects him with other philosophers who are not Christians so he talks about the human condition as such at the very beginning And he says that, you know, there's many people that hold this opinion, which some philosophers have maintained God is not subject to anger. And he starts giving some, you know, reasonings there. And he says the error of these people tends to overthrow the condition of human life and we need to refute it. So what's going on here? He says that we're not so arrogant as to boast that the truth is comprehended, like grasped as a totality by our intellect, our intellectual capacities, quite literally. But we follow the teaching of God, who alone is able to know and reveal secret things. So God comes in to help out. And he says, following that, the philosophers being destitute of this teaching, they are going astray. Why? Because the mind of the human being, right? The human mind, as he says, enclosed in the dark abode of the the body. He actually uses the word for shadowy here, tenebrosis, right? So the human mind is inevitably connected with the body. He'll he'll talk about this at greater length in later chapters. And because of that, can it perceive truth? Well, I mean, obviously some truths are very easy to perceive say through the body, like that this chalk is white, or if I was going to bite down on it, that it's not good to eat, right? But when it comes to the things that matter more, particularly matters of God or the soul or the providential ordering of the world or our emotions, well, it's not quite so easy for us. And we often do, in fact, make mistakes. So that is part of the human condition right off the bat, right? We're removed from the perception of truth. Then we've got a second problem here. If we're going to be thinking about God and anger, the main topic of the treatise, the divine nature is distanced or differs from the human nature, right? Literally what he's saying there in the Latin is divinitas is different than humanitas. And because of that, we we look at ourselves and we can understand ourselves quite fine, but extrapolating to God, that's a bit trickier now, isn't it? And so, you know, we also have a correlation here. The divine nature is knowledgeable. It possesses scientia, true knowledge of things. Whereas we're so marked by a lack of knowledge, ignorancia, what we translate as ignorance, which is including of ourselves and of the divine. So, what can we do here? He says, on account of this, we have some need of light to dispel the darkness by which the reflection of human beings is overspread. While we live in our mortal flesh, we're unable to divine by our senses. But, well, what is this? The light of the human mind is God. He who is known and admitted him into his breast will acknowledge the mystery of truth with an enlightened heart. But when God and heavenly instruction are removed, things are full of errors. We make all sorts of mistakes. And here he brings up, interestingly, the example of Socrates. And we do have to say, this is not the real Socrates. This is the portrait of Socrates that the skeptics like to put forward. Oh, I don't know anything at all, right? But there is something valuable in this, he says. Socrates, though he was the most learned of all the philosophers, yet that he might prove the ignorance of the others who thought they possessed something rightly said, he knew nothing except one thing that he knew nothing nothing. For he understood that learning had nothing certain, nothing true in itself, nor, as some imagined, did he pretend to learning that he might refute others. But he saw the truth in some measure, and he testified even on his trial that there was no human wisdom. I mean, is this really accurate, well, Lactantius is playing a little fast and loose, but you get the idea here. At least some people can, in a kind of humility, say that they don't know everything and that philosophy can't provide the entire truth about stuff and may need some help. So he is going to tell us in the passage that I skipped over very quickly that philosophers, being destitute of the teaching of God, have imagined the nature of things. Natura rerum can be ascertained by, as he calls it, conjecture, conjectura, right? It's just a transliteration of that term. And we can give a few examples in here of that. You know, a little bit later on, he will talk about Epicurus having made one... A questionable assumption, and then because of that, not realizing it, getting drawn into a whole set of mistaken assumptions having to do with the emotions. Namely, that if you've got one emotion, you've got the whole register of human emotions. And Lactantius says, well, not even really true for human beings, but if we think this through, we can see that that's not the case for God. So, you know, conjecture can get you into trouble. He talks at another point about the Stoics having gone wrong and giving all sorts of mistaken definitions of anger as a result because they fail to see the distinction between just or good anger and unjust or bad anger. They just treat it all, here's a conjecture, all anger is unjust, right? So once you make these sorts of conjectures or assumptions, which you do because, you know, how else are you going to proceed? Well, you go astray, right? What could we do by contrast? So in chapter two, Lactantius is going to tell us about the steps to genuine knowledge. And these are grados, right, gradus. These are, you could say, gradations or stages, whatever you wanna translate them as. So he says, there's many steps by which the ascent is made to the abode of truth. It's not easy for anyone to reach the summit. Why? Because when the eyes are darkened by the brightness of the truth, they who are unable to maintain a firm step fall back to level ground. So there's something about some of the objects that we're studying particularly God, as we approach them, the eyes of our mind are dazzled by them. And so we have to, as we're going up one step to the next, we have to make sure that we're firmly on the step because if we don't, what's going to happen? He actually is going to talk about falling back to ruin, right? Ad ruinam is the Latin there. So these are things that not only do we have to make the step, we have to consolidate the step. So what are these three steps? He says, the first step is to understand false religions and throw aside the impious worship of gods, which are made by the hand of human beings. So essentially, you know, understand the falseness of false religions and reject the worship of idols or idolatry, right? That's what idolatry means. Latria, service of worship of idols, things that human beings create. We'll look at what that means in just a moment. What's the second step? He says that it's to perceive with the mind that there is but one supreme God whose power and providence made the world from the beginning and afterwards continues to govern it. So, you know, this is telling you some things about the nature of God, engaging in essentially rational theology, right? Although it could be coming from scriptural passages or people telling you things with testimony, right? And then step, Step three is distinctively Christian, we could say. The third step is to know his servant, and messenger or herald, right, who he sent as his ambassador to the earth by whose teaching being freed of the error in which we were held entangled and formed to the worship of the true God, we might learn righteousness. So, you know, there's some, um, you could call it getting rid of wrongheaded ideas, then making your way to understanding that there is a God and what God is like. And then finally, a third step of, you know, we could call it consolidation through this media mediator of Christ, right? And so he goes on with each of these and he says, we see those shaken off from the first step who, though they understand things that are false, don't discover that which is true. Though they despised earthly and frail images, they do not betake themselves to the worship of a god who they're ignorant. So this would include some of the atheistic or agnostic philosophers of the past, who, you know, he's going to mention a little bit later on, who say, yeah, 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 that ancient Greek religion, that's all BS, but they don't have anything to put in its place. So that's a problem. And he goes on and he says, there's others who view with admiration the elements of the universe, and they worship the heaven or the earth, the sea, the sun the moon other heavenly bodies and that's a problem right and he says you know we've already talked about this in the divine institutes i don't need to go into that anymore The second step, he says, there are those who fall from it because they understand that there is one supreme God, but ensnared by the philosophers, captivated by false arguments, they entertain opinions concerning that far removed from the truth. And so what are some of these? Well, they deny that God has any figure or think that he is moved by no affection because every affection is a sign of weakness. So that's going to be a problem. And that is really going to be what he's going to talk about here as well. We'll see. But then there's the third step, right? So how do people get to and then fall away from the third step? He tells us that they know the ambassador of God, who is also the builder of the divine and immortal temple, but either they don't receive him or they receive him otherwise than faith demands. And we've also talked about this in the divine institutes. This leads to various sects which have destroyed the truth. So here he's not really thinking about philosophers as such as he is at step. two and step one he's thinking more about unorthodox versions of christianity that make of this christ figure something other than what orthodox christianity does which will yield knowledge about the human condition and about god so now coming back in chapter two to the second stage he says Here, we're going to argue against those who falling from the second step, entertain wrong sentiments, respecting the supreme God. What are these with respect to anger? Some say he neither does a kindness to anyone nor becomes angry. Others take away anger, but leave to God kindness. So the philosophers wind up being agreed on the subject of anger, but they're at variance regarding kindness. And he says, okay, I'm going to deal with these. And that's what we see him doing in in the rest of the work. There is one other thing that we should mention in relation to this. So, you know, God is helping human beings to use the faculty of reason that they were given more fully and to avoid falling into some of the mistakes that the non-Christian philosophers, even though they're relatively wise compared to other human beings, the mistakes that they're making by following out conjectures. So, you know, if we look at chapter seven, this is a particularly interesting one. He's comparing human beings to, as you call it, the brute animals, the animals that are different than us that we say are lacking in rationality. And he actually goes on to say, well, you know, we want to say that human beings are distinct from the other animals by being this or this or this. But you know, the other animals kind of participate in that. So if you look at what he says, he says, speech is peculiar to human beings. Even in the animals, there's a certain resemblance to speech, right? Laughter is also peculiar to human beings. But we see certain indications of joy in other animals. What is so peculiar to human beings as reason and the foreseeing of the future? But there are animals which open several outlets in different directions from their layers. Seems like they're engaged in some intelligence and reflection, some problem solving. Other animals are provident for the future. So what really is distinctive to us human beings? It's not just rationality. It's something that you could say incorporates rationality and develop it further and that is wisdom wisdom is what is distinctive to human beings and he'll talk later on about god giving us wisdom that's a capacity that we have and it has to do with judging good and evil right now this as he is going to assert is going to be connected with God. He says, uh, he brings up Cicero. On this account, there's no animal, as Cicero says, except the human being that has any knowledge of God. The human being alone is furnished with wisdom so that the human being alone understands religion. This is the chief or only difference between human being and the dumb animals. Wisdom and religion, this capacity to, as we could say, learn from incorporate what it is that God wants us to know so that we're not stuck in ignorance or semi-learned ignorance like the philosophers who don't have the advantages of being taught and connected with God. So, you know, we need to rely upon that if we want to make progress, particularly when it comes to understanding the nature of the divine, you know, and we can zero in on specific problems like, you know, does God get angry or not? If God does, why does God get angry? How does God get angry? Those are things that the pre-Christian philosophers, according to Lactantius, couldn't really make adequate progress with. But going up these gradations, these steps towards greater knowledge aided by God, human beings can, in fact, properly understand. And so this is a prime example of what we might call applied Christian philosophy. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.